Okay, it's time for our main Bible reading. We're in Mark 15. Mark 15, and I'm going to read the whole chapter from verse 1. And it says this. If you want a question to be thinking about, um, have a think about, uh, look out for uh, Mark's, things that normally happen in the coronation of a king that might be happening in this account. So look out for any clues or any events that you think, oh, that, that's what we'd expect in a coronation in one way or another. But here we go. 15 verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed a murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release uh, for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away, led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, But he did not take it, and they crucified him, and divided the garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him 
also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemesa which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of a temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together. There's, there is an outline of where we're going in the handouts, so make use of that. And by all means, we can have um, a time at the end for any questions or comments or reflections. Uh, so we'll see how we get on with that. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this record of these extraordinary um, events concerning the death of your son. And we pray, please, that the same spirit who inspired Mark to pen these words would help us to understand uh, what they mean. Please, Father, would you help us to understand your purpose in suffering, not least the suffering um, of your son. Uh, please, would you help us to reflect on these things uh, together, that we might understand uh, uh, your purposes, not only for your son, uh, but for uh, your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Death is a peculiar thing. We tend to think of it as natural, because, well, everybody dies. It's just part of life. Yet from time to time, when we think about it, we see what an unnatural thing it is, how it doesn't seem right. Like the death of a baby or a small child. It doesn't seem right that their child should be taken in this way. And in fact, when anybody close is taken from us, it seems not the way it should be. Yet it is the way for everybody, 
And therefore, we tend to think of it as natural. But that's not the Bible's view. The Bible's view is that it is unnatural to die. That man was not created in order to die, but to live. Now, the reason that people die is given back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Sin is regarded as having a penalty. God's word has been given that death results from disobedience. If there's one thing that we know from the narrative of creation, is that when God says it, it is so. Death is the penalty for sin. Now, this view of death is one that we tend to avoid talking about. Because while death is pretty bad news, when you see it as being the judgment of God on our lives, then it's a subject that people find quite unpalatable. And it's considered bad manners to discuss it. Well, what then of the death of Jesus? Was that to be expected? Well, as a man, we expect him to die like everybody else. Yet if the Bible's right, and that death is the penalty of sin, then we shouldn't expect him to die, as he always obeyed God's will. The New Testament maintains that Jesus committed no sin. Jesus himself turns to his enemies and says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Yet if the reason we die is as a penalty for sin, and Jesus committed no sin, then we'd not expect him to die. But throughout this gospel, and we've seen throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus told us that he was going to die. So Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he told them, not just once, but repeatedly, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 10, verse 33, chapter 10, verse 45, and chapter 14, verse 22. He told them how, why, where. So we should be expecting Jesus' death because he expected it. His enemies expected his death because from Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we read how they plotted to kill him. Uh, Mark 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Yet, his death was unexpected by his friends. They didn't think that Jesus would die. Peter, in Mark chapter 8, remember that one? Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Now, Peter's understood that Jesus is the Christ. How then can he be killed? Jerusalem is the, is the place where he is expected to be enthroned, not executed. Now, as we read Mark 15, it's popular for preachers to get us to focus on some of the characters in the chapter. Now, there's Pilate, who desires to satisfy the crowds. There are the chief priests, who are acting out of envy. And there's Simon, who takes up the cross of Jesus. 
and we're asked, who are you most like? Are you a pilot who wants to please the crowd? Are you a chief priest who is full of envy? Or are you a Simon who carries the cross of Jesus? But these chapters, or this chapter, is not about those things. It's not about us. It's about the death of Jesus. The charge against Jesus was that he was the king of the Jews. It's a charge that Pilate questions him about in Mark chapter 15, verse 2. Pilate asks, 15 verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Now, it's easy to get confused at this point because there's been no hint of Jesus being the king of the Jews in Mark so far. Now, that's not to say that other things haven't been said about him. The voice from heaven at his baptism said of Jesus in Mark 1, you are my beloved son. Peter says of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, you are the Christ. Indeed, Mark himself, as he begins his gospel, says, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we've got this whole series of words that have been used about this man, the Christ, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. Now, just to help us um, think about this, we need to recall the idea of kingship in the Old Testament. So the king of Israel was appointed by God, and the method of his appointment was anointing. Oil was poured on his head. So that the anointed one becomes synonymous with the king of Israel. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the word to anoint in Hebrew is, anyone know? Messiah. So whoever is a Messiah, is an anointed one, is the king of Israel. Now they also called him the son of God, because in Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, God says to the Messiah, the anointed one, you are my son, today I become your father. So that whoever is the son of God is the Messiah, who is the anointed one, who is the king of Israel. In other words, the phrase son of God equals the phrase anointed, equals the phrase king of Israel. Now, whilst, whilst these titles were used of all of Israel's kings, the Old Testament anticipated the coming of one who was something bigger than the Old Testament king, one whose rule would extend to the nations of the world and whose kingdom would last forever. So that these titles became synonymous with that particular king of Israel. The Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. Now the New Testament is written in Greek. And if you translate Messiah into Greek, you get the Greek word Christos, from which we get the English word Christ. That is to say, Christ equals Messiah, equals anointed one, equals king of Israel, equals son of God. They're all the same thing. There's this whole series of different words, different titles, which bring um, nuance and uh, depth, but th they actually mean the same thing. 
So, what about the charge made against Jesus? Is it true? Are we to understand Jesus to be the King of the Jews, that is, the Christ, the Son of God? Well, as I mentioned earlier, in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark tells his readers the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark has told his readers that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the people in the action, they don't know that yet. But Mark knows it. And his readers know it. And we know. Now, in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus is baptised and a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. Now, in the first instance, this is not God the Father telling us that Jesus is God the Son. It's not an affirmation that Jesus is the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity. The voice is quoting Psalm 2, telling us that Jesus, telling Jesus that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. Now, it's not that Jesus did not know that before, but now we know he knows. Okay, so you know it, Mark knows it, Jesus knows it, the readers know it, nobody else knows it. Now the evil spirits keep on professing him to be the son of God, but Jesus tells them to keep quiet about it. So the powers of evil know it. Jesus knows it, Mark knows it. You know it, but nobody else knows it. Now, it's not until chapter 8 that Jesus finds his disciples believing that he is the Christ. And that's halfway through the gospel. And it's not until then that the first human acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. And they're just the disciples. And in 1461, as in Mark 14, verse 61, the high priest asked of Jesus, are you the Christ? the son of the blessed. And Jesus says, I am. That is the first time he publicly identifies himself as the Christ to the public, this time to his accusers. And finally, in chapter 15, verse 2, Pilate says to him, I, the king of the Jews, and Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. The only charge that is put against him that he will accept is the charge of being the king of the Jews. And it's now proclaimed that he is the king of the Jews. First to the disciples, then to the Jews, and now even to Gentiles. Jesus is the Christ. Well, what then are we to make of his death? Well, in chapter 15, we have recorded in some detail the execution of Jesus. And it's an interesting chapter because very little detail is given to the gory facts. The facts that some people like to stress and dwell on. Whether that be his flogging with a whip that most likely had sharp pieces of sheep bone tied to it that would have ripped his skin, eventually weakening him to a state just short of collapse. Or the amount of blood that he must have lost from his head when the crown of thorns was pushed into his skull. Or simply the horrors of crucifixion itself, with spikes driven through his wrists, struggling to breathe as the load of his body weighed him down. 
Yet these are not the details that are recorded for us in Mark 15. The gory details are left out. Rather, there's a reason to read the account of Jesus' death as nothing short of a coronation. That is, the ceremony at which he is made king. Now, the idea isn't as surprising as we might think. For from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus has announced the arrival of the kingdom of God. And this means that we're anticipating the point when the king is to be crowned. And Mark 15 fits in with that. Furthermore, the account of Mark 15 contains the details we expect to find in a coronation. So uh, let's have a look at a few examples. In 15 verse 2, there's a question and answer thing that's often present at a coronation. Pilate asks, I the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. Then have a look at verse 15. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. The king is given a royal robe in a royal colour, the colour purple. And a crown is placed on his head. Then in verse 18, the king's subjects call out, Hail, king of the Jews. And in verse 15, so verse 19, the subjects now pay homage to him, the newly crowned king, as they fall to their knees and bow before him. The description, when you think about it, that we're reading in Mark 15, is a description that matches the description of a coronation of a king. So the thing that is emphasised is not the roughness with which they treated him, but that they mock him as a king. The amount of blood that he loses from his head is not the point, but that it was a crown that they placed on him. One of the difficulties that we can find in reading the Gospels, and in particular of the Gospel of Mark, is that there's a fair bit of confusion going on. People don't seem to know who Jesus really is or the significance of all that is happening. The disciples can seem pretty clueless at times. And at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, nobody seems to know the significance of what was happening. It wasn't until later that the apostles understood. And the New Testament contains a number of letters that were written by them to explain the significance of what had happened. The Apostle Peter was one who put it all together. And he writes what we heard in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is to say that it was through the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus that God appoints him as king, as the Christ. That as he dies, he comes into his kingship. 
And this coronation in Mark 15 anticipates this understanding, that it's through Jesus' death that the Father enthrones the Son as the Lord over all creation. I mean, it is an extraordinary idea that Jesus becomes king by being executed and dying on behalf of his subjects, one that could easily be missed. But Mark does not want us to miss it. And he used irony to bring out the meaning of what is going on. And it's now, at this point, we're in a position to appreciate that irony. The first irony is what's called a verbal irony. The soldiers say one thing, but they mean another. So they treat Jesus as the Christ, but they really think that he's a joke. Now, what's taking place here is not standard procedure. This is barracks room humour. They put some sort of robe on him as if he is an emperor, and they twist into a crown one of those spiked vines that they have in the Middle East, and they ram it down on his head. They put a stick in his hand as if it's a scepter and pretend that he's a great monarch. Hail, king of the Jews, they say, bowing down, slapping his face, laughing. Such fun. They take the stick that's supposed to be the symbol of his power and bash it against his head again and again. More laughter. Barracks room humour. So every time they say, hail, king of the Jews, they mean the exact opposite. In the context, the words actually convey nothing but ridicule and mockery. They think that their humour is deeply ironic and very funny. But there is a deep irony. And this one is not a verbal irony, it's called a dramatic irony. For Mark knows, and the readers know, that Jesus is the Christ. It is in obedience to his Father's will that Jesus will lay down his life be raised, ascended, and be exalted as Lord over all. That is to say that it's through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that God appoints him as king, as the Christ. That as he dies, he comes into his kingship, and this coronation in Mark 15 anticipates this understanding. So to be fair, the soldiers, they think they are mocking him, they think they are mocking the prisoner. The only reason they're happy to acknowledge that he is the king of Israel is because he is a joke. Yet at the same time, they spoke and acted more than they knew. For he was the king of the Jews, that is, the Christ. And in Mark 15, we witness something of his coronation. They think they are mocking him with this joke coronation. But there's a very real sense that in crucifying him, they were actually making him king. As I finish, uh, let me just I'll pull out two related implications. 
The first is this. The Bible contains many different types of writing styles, and that reflects the many and varied human authors that wrote it. If you recall, the Bible has dual authorship, human and divine. And since the Bible has dual authorship, justice needs to be done to both the human side and the divine side. And Mark's use of irony reminds us of the importance of being sensitive to an author's writing style. And here, Mark is not simply describing what happened, but he, he relates it, he tells it in such a way as to bring out the meaning. And secondly, this diversity of writing styles is for our benefit. Mark's use of irony doesn't only help us to see what God is doing in Jesus' death, but it contributes to our understanding of what God thinks of us. For the soldiers think they are poking fun at Jesus in this mock coronation. But Mark's use of irony turns the tables on them. So they're the ones been poked fun at. They mock Jesus, but the God-inspired Mark mocks them. People may well choose to mock God, but God has the last laugh. Let's pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might choose to have. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your, uh, from the beginning your scriptures have anticipated one who would come and restore your creation and rule the ends of the earth and bring it back in alignment under uh, you, the Father's rule. And we thank you that one has come in the person of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, and Father, we thank you for his work uh, on the cross. Um, we thank you how Mark adds that richness to understanding that as he picks out the way that there is this mock coronation where he is uh, made fun of as nothing other than uh, a prisoner to whom they will kill, that actually Mark would have us see that this is not uh, a mock coronation. This is the coronation of the Son to a place of authority over all things. Um, and therefore, Father, we thank you for helping us to understand uh, the purpose of Jesus' death um, and the purpose of his suffering in your purposes for him, that it's in his death uh, that he is crowned your king. We thank you for that and pray that in the coming days we would pay homage to him, that we would bow before him as your king and uh, turn to him and receive and continue to receive uh, the mercy uh, that he has provided um, in, in this cross-saving work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay. Does anybody want to ask anything?
You don't have to. Okay, let's um, let's move to uh, the next song. Help us reflect further on um, Jesus' death. Ode to the dawn. <laughs> 